Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, for that great introduction. Today with me, I have Sarah Jane Butfield. She is an indie author and freelance columnist. She's also the mother of, are you ready for this? Seven children and one grandchild. She has published a series of short books for new and aspiring authors called The What, Why, Where, When, Who, and How Book Promotion Series. And she will share that with us today. She's also written a series in her memoir. Called, the first one in the series was Glass Half Full. The second is Two Dogs and a Suitcase. They are Australian adventure series written in a reality TV format, which I thought was very interesting, and I'm sure she will share that with us as well. And there's more to come in this series. She has survived much trauma in her life, and she's going to share that story with us today as well. Welcome, Sarah Jane. Thank you. Very good to be here. Well, let's start with, tell us what it's like to be a mom to seven kids. Okay, well, um, it's, it's quite a, we're quite a complex bunch, so I'll give you a little bit of the history. Um, I've been married for three times now, um, and from the first two marriages, um, I have four children, uh, three girls um, and a boy. Um, my third time lucky marriage to Nigel, um, he has three children. So um, when they were all growing up, obviously, um, for the majority of the time, we had um, all seven of them, um, which involved... Uh, quite big logistical um, operations on weekends and school holidays. Um, we always have a very busy household. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and even now that they're all growing up and going their separate ways, it's still like a hotel. <laughs> what ages are they now? Okay, so we've got the eldest at um, 30 and we've got the youngest at 18. And they're all nicely spread in between. <laughs> and an empty nest? Um, well, I thought we had an empty nest, but it looks like we might have an arrival returning shortly. So <laughs> they come back, don't they? A lot of they people, do. They do. Yes, they keep coming back. <laughs> okay, continue with uh, what it's like being a mum to those. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, in in the early days of Nigel and I being together, it was very difficult because um, you know, obviously, anybody who's been through divorce and uh, child custody. Um, issues will know that there's always the issues with bitter ex-partners um, and how do you, how you regulate contact visits and you know who has 
various children on school holidays and that kind of thing. So um, that's always a very difficult thing to get through. But we've been really fortunate that all of the children um, bonded um, straight away. So uh-huh. they've, they've always had a very close relationship um, and, and that's continued into adulthood. You know, they still... Um, or, you know, regardless of where they are in the world, uh, they get together on a regular basis. And obviously, every now and again, we manage to get um, the majority of them here, um, you know, for a big family reunion. So um, I think I think we did OK. Good. That's a good feeling, isn't it? Yes, it is. And during that time was when the children were home is this when you had some trauma in your life I remember you said something in your bio regarding your daughter do you want to share that with us yeah I think um probably the the major uh sort of trauma for me was um we made the decision to move to Australia uh really after um after my divorce uh became quite messy um my youngest uh Jamie um her father um it was it was an abusive relationship and I was quite glad to be out of that and obviously when I met Nigel he he took over uh, the father role of Jamie um but when we decided to go to Australia um for no out of the blue and with no previous contact with her um her biological father decided that he wanted her to go and live with him um obviously the initial um, order for that was dismissed by the court because he had no relationship with her but they did allow that um, he should start having contact with her um, which was really really difficult because if you can imagine you know she'd never known him Um, you know he'd been gone from her life um, since she was a few Mm, months old and suddenly she has to go and sit in a contact center with a man who is a stranger to her um who's insisting that she you know she calls him daddy and things like that so right. totally you know messed with her head um and we were in and out of court for over a year um because you know he was quite adamant that you know he he wanted her and um he even tried to abduct her at one stage wow. um you know so um which is all you know apart from how you know it was terribly traumatic for her and and for us but for the other children to see what we were going through because obviously they were in their teens sure um, and it was very very distressing for them and you know we had to try and make the best decisions that we could for all of the children and not just for one of them and and I think that's where um, some of the parts of, of um, my first book cause a bit of controversy because, you know, sometimes I get comments from people, you know, that, you know, you've made bad parenting decisions. But I think until you've actually been in that situation, it's very difficult to say how you would react, what you would do in the same set of circumstances. Exactly. And I had this conversation just yesterday about uh, someone else's book. And I said, you know, when you write a memoir, it is about what happened. It is not to pass judgment when you read it because it already has happened. And it's not a matter of of anything to do with the, you know, the style of the book or how the book was written. I mean, this is your life. And if you painted a different picture, it wouldn't be a memoir. I think that's the, that's the whole point. And, um, you know, I've, I've spoken to because I speak to quite a lot of um, book clubs and do readings and mm-hmm. things. And one of the biggest things that come across is that um, readers actually respect the honesty in the book. You know, they can good, actually tell good, by good. reading it that, you know, I haven't uh, fictionalized any of it to make it more 
book worthy or to make it more glamorous. It is what it is. That's right. And, um, you know, it is our story and not everybody will agree. Um, not everybody will approve, but it is the way it is. And, you know, to be honest, you know, sometimes when I look back on, on what happened, if I'd known what I know now, I may have done some things of differently. Course, of course. But, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. That's and, right. <laughs> If we could all use that, that way, you know, life would be lovely. <laughs> That's right. We need to have a restart button, you know. Indeed. <laughs> so how did you how did you deal with the other children through this? I mean, were you basically focusing on just your daughter? Uh, did they feel left out? Was there guilt involved? Like what were, you know, how did you cope with these emotions as they came up? I think, um Amongst the the older children, uh, they demonstrated quite a lot of anger towards the situation because obviously they hated to see me so upset. Um, you know, we obviously never took them to the court situations, but you know, when they saw how distressed Jamie was when she came back from a contact visit, um, you know, obviously they just felt very angry about that, and we had to try and give them um, means to. Um, expel that and verbalize what they wanted so we had a lot of we spent a lot of time with them on a one-to-one basis both Nigel and I just to try and get to the root cause of what exactly was their trigger for their anger so that they didn't store that all up because you know everybody knows how how bad that is for you to sort of encase anger inside you and not be able to to share it so um, I think that was that was the main way that we dealt with it and obviously it's worked because it you, has. Sound, you yes. sound like you have a good relationship now and you got through that. Now, was it this daughter then that um, is dealing with the post-traumatic stress syndrome? Uh, no, Jamie is the one who's dealing with the chronic regional pain syndrome. Okay, so um, tell us about that. Okay, well, um, obviously Jamie came out to Australia with us. Um, she was 11 years old when we left and um, and she loved the Australian lifestyle. Um, you know, she's an outdoorsy tomboy girl and she loved the fact, you know, that the Australian climate, you know, gave her time after school for activities outside. She loved to swim and climb and camp and do all of those things. Um, while we were living in Alice Springs, she went on um, an Aboriginal bush camp. It was part of a, um, a socialising um scheme from the school that she was in because obviously she was in school with a lot of indigenous children and so they like to um, encourage them to all do the same group activities so she went away on this camp Um, she had a wonderful time you know they did bareback horse riding cattle herding um, slept outside with dingoes all around them you know she was in her element (laughs) but when she came home she had a boil on her knee um, and she went to the doctor's had a two-week course of antibiotics and the boil disappeared and, you know, we assumed everything was fine. Um, and then one morning she was getting ready for school. Um, Jamie was also a runner as well and she'd been training for a 5K run and she was complaining of a pain in her groin. But, you know, uh, she just started her periods and, you know, you sort of think, oh, right, it's, right. it's that kind of thing. And to be honest, I played it down. I said, look, you've been training, you know, Maybe your periods, because they weren't regular at that stage. I said, maybe your periods do, you know, we'll just keep an eye on it. Um, but within sort of half an hour, she was screaming and I went in and she'd got red striking all the way down her leg. So oh. I knew there was something terrible going on. Um, took her straight into the emergency department. And luckily, because I was a staff member there, we were 
taken straight through. We didn't have to wait or anything. Um, and they took her straight through, um, examined her, did an ultrasound of her groin and found that she'd got a huge abscess in her groin, um, which was five centimetres by three centimetres um, large. And what they think happened was that although the boil reduced on the outside, that the infection actually tracked up into her lymph node. Um, and obviously that's where the abscess formed. So um, she was on IV, um, analgesia and um, antibiotics, but they couldn't, you know, they were doing, um, you know, two hourly scans and they couldn't get the size to reduce. So wow. they decided that she needed it surgically drained. Um, and obviously that was going to take a long time to heal because obviously with an abscess, you can't suture it up. You have right. to pack it and let it heal from inside. Uh, the surgery went really well. Everybody was, you know, really pleased. And um, the day after the surgery, obviously the wound was packed and we were waiting for the doctor's rounds. And what happens in, in that situation is that the nurses usually come around first and they will take the dressing down so that when the doctors come in, they can just look at the wound, um, you know, examine right. mm -hmm. and, and advise. Um, I'd just gone to the door because I could see the doctors on the on the on the ward. I went to the door to see where the nurse was, and as I turned around, the doctors had already gone into the room. And it's a teaching hospital, so they had a lot of student doctors, so there's quite a big entourage with them. So I'm looking across, and the surgeon just went up to Jamie and he pulled out the pack which hadn't been soaked. Oh. Um, she literally leapt off the bed and it was as if I was watching this from behind glass because I could not nobody was hearing me and nothing oh. was nothing was happening but she was on the floor all of her drips had come out so blood was gushing um serous fluid from the abscess site was draining down her leg so she was laying in a little pool in a fetal position and I pushed past them and I just picked her up onto my lap and she was just screaming um and the doctors all walked out called for a nurse and then an anaesthetist had to come and they had to take her uh, to a special care to actually sedate her because oh. she, you know, she was just so distressed. Um, so that was, that was the beginning. Um, well, what happened to the, the doctors in the situation? Uh, they just, well, they, they blamed the nursing staff. They said that they'd been told that everybody was ready to be examined. Um, but, you know, I've worked in healthcare for 28 years and it's always the nursing staff that, that right. bear okay. the brunt. Fair enough. Um, you know, so, um, so she was in hospital for, you know, um, quite a few more days, um, you know, heavily uh, dosed up on morphine and, and various other things. Um, and when I did eventually, you know, when I got to take her home, we, we didn't actually know what it, what it had done to her mentally. Um, Obviously, you know, she had, you know, five or six months of having this wound packed every day and she had to learn to do it herself because obviously, you know, going to school and, and doing things. Um, she's still got a, you know, a huge scar there, which she calls, we all call it her, her shark bite because that gives her a little bit of uh, kudos, you know, that she's lived in Australia and she's got the <laughs> shark bite, uh, you know, because she's, you know, she's a, you know, um, a very, uh, you know, as any 18 year old girl, you know, she likes to wear a bikini and she likes right, to, right. you know, to do things. Uh, she, like, you know, she does a bit of modeling as well. So she's very conscious of, of the scar. And, um, but what happened was that, um, she developed, um, a pain in her knee, which we thought was associated with where she'd had the boil before. Um, and, just the first couple of times we didn't really, you know, 
you can't see anything. And we knew that there'd been a problem there. So she went to the doctors. They would just give her some preliminary antibiotics just in case there was something happening there again. Um, we didn't really make any progress. And then one day um, she was just in so much pain and we just thought, I can't go to the doctors for this. We've got to go to the emergency room. Um, and while we were in the emergency room, I'm sitting there next to her and her leg, um, the right leg that was affected um, by the abscess, was changing colour as I was watching her. It was going from the normal sort of skin, you know, pinky, um, well-perfused colour to a purple-blue colour just from her knee downwards. And I'm sitting there watching it thinking, this is not normal. By the time I, I'd pressed the buzzer for someone to come over, blisters were developing over oh. her feet and I'm watching them as it was as if someone was scalding her with water but there was nothing there oh. and they were just developing it and I'm watching them and the, uh, the nursing sister and the doctor came over and they're standing there looking at it and you know the first thing they said is we've never seen this before Dumbfounded. Uh, we yeah. don't know what this is um, and they just threw a cold towel over it oh. trying to treat it as if it was a scald or a burn um they called the neurologist down um, and obviously the paediatric uh, surgeon came down and, and that was when, you know, they first said it might be um, chronic regional pain syndrome, but, you know, we need to, you know, sort of obviously deal with this first and then when she's well and there's nothing wrong with her, we need to, you know, look at it um, a bit deeper. Um, and as it, as it turned out, you know, this, started to happen on a regular basis and we found there was a pattern that whenever she injured herself or say she had a toothache or she banged her elbow or she had a period pain this would happen to her leg oh my goodness so her brain was telling her any pain my leg is to blame and oh. she could make this this discoloration not always the blisters but certainly the discoloration could happen when she had something wrong with her so even now, whenever she says to you, this is wrong with me, I've got a stomach ache, yes, you, you take on board what she's saying to you, but you immediately look at her leg because wow. you can tell whether or not it's actually her chronic regional pain syndrome or whether she's actually got something wrong with her elsewhere. Mm. Um, and I think the sad thing for me as, as a mum is to know that she's got to live with this. You know, there isn't a cure for it. Um, you know, she's had... Um, uh, cognitive behavior training and therapy. She's had desensitization therapy to try to reset mm -hmm. the, the, the mechanism. Yes. But the reality is that any kind of severe pain could trigger this. And if you think, you know, if she goes on and wants to have children, um, you know, is this going to trigger it during pregnancy, during childbirth? You know, if she ever is involved, you know, in an accident of any kind, you know, these are all the times when when this could potentially be very serious for her. But I think the biggest problem is that people don't all believe her because yes, they can't see it. Yes. Um, and unless the discoloration happens, it's, oh, this is Jamie attention-seeking again. Because, you know, um, especially the, the when she was in high school and these episodes started happening, um, when the pain comes on for her, she is inconsolable. And it doesn't matter whether they give her morphine or whether they give her Entonox, you cannot control her. She is screaming as if someone is murdering her. And when people can't see anything physically wrong with her, 
it's as if, oh, well, look, you know, she's, you know, she's making this up. And, and I know it's a hard thing to say, but it's the truth. But even, you know, some of her brothers and sisters and even Nigel at times have had trouble getting to terms with, yes, yes. with this because, yes. you know, it's not a black and white right. issue and anything that's painful for her can trigger it. It doesn't necessarily need to be a severe physical pain for it that anybody else would classify as that, but in her perception, um, and stress triggers it too. Um, you know, that's another, you know, variable <laughs> in this pot. Well, we'll talk about the stress in a second with the oh. uh, uh, post uh, traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah. Let's go back a bit though. Is first of all, is this pain centralized? It's, is it always in the same place? Um, it's always the leg. Um, it's always the leg. She, okay. Yeah, yeah. And refresh my memory again. How did this initially happen? So the trigger was um, the the episode in the hospital when the doctor had pulled that the, was the, the pack out. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And. Um, I'm I'm just I'm speechless. I mean to think what you have had to endure, let alone what your poor daughter has to endure. Now has she had help emotionally or is this are you the emotional break for her? I think on a on a day to day basis, you know, I am the emotional break for her because um she being a teenager, it's very hard to go, you know, like when she was in school to go to sessions um, you know, with a psychiatrist or a counsellor or whatever without that stigma of yes oh crazy girl you right, know right. <laughs> what's wrong with her um you know she had a few close friends you know who who were very supportive but she didn't want that label and you know we've we've tried really hard to not label her with it but it is really important that people who are close to her know about it because you know she can have something very minor happen to her that can trigger such a huge response um, which is, can be really frightening to people who don't know what this is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, we've had, you know, people call an ambulance for her when she's been constipated just because the pain that she conceives is so huge and she'll be curled up on the floor and people don't know what's wrong with her. And she can't, she's so distressed she can't tell anybody. So they think it's something really serious and they call an ambulance because they don't know what else to do. Um, and so it's about educating and raising awareness um but without putting a big sign around her neck saying i've got this i'm different (laughs) i'm different now with the uh other people who are affected by complex regional pain syndrome is it usually similar or is it very different and what kind of things trigger it i think there are very many similar traits but they do say that everyone by the same token is slightly different um you know obviously everybody's got a slightly different trigger um you know it can be some people can get it from a relatively minor um initial situation which is then not dealt with very well and and builds up and builds up and becomes you know something of a chronic nature whereas with Jamie it was a a chronic episode you know a, a traumatic incident that triggered hers um, I think the, the other things that are similar is that um, they people who suffer from it never feel believed. They all say that they feel as if people think they are faking it. And it's one of the most common um, elements 
to the problem um, and the stigma that goes with that it's a mental issue rather than a physical one because we accept physical illness yes we don't yes. question it yes. on any level but when it is a, of a psychological nature or it has a psychological element people are less accepting of that as far as medication goes two questions number one is there any like narcotic or anything that can alleviate the pain and number two is there anything that she can take to prevent um, these episodes um, prevention there's nothing in the way of medication as such when she's having an episode and in the period afterwards the most beneficial thing that they've found is a very low dose of an antidepressant because of the neurological effects that okay. that has um, we again it's an area that you know when you're dealing with this in a teenage girl you try and steer away from um medication and yes, particularly things yes. that hold that word of depressant around them because mm -hmm. you know when they're hormonal and everything is a drama you know we never wanted her to become dependent on something like that because then when she needed it for her um, pain syndrome the reality was that it probably wouldn't work as well for her so we always tried to keep the, the periods of time when she's recovering as small as possible and tried to focus on the physical um, therapies you know she has physio she had physio for six months after each episode um, we do desensitization at home and you know we try to focus on you know doing physical things to mentally stimulate her rather than using uh, medication to, to give her that lift and how has mum handled this emotionally a huge element of guilt. Um, you know, you, you replay the scene of when it happened. You, the guilt from, you know, did I deal with the boil right in the first place? You know, I took her to the doctor, but, you know, should I, you know, I'm a, I've been a nurse for many years. Yes. Should I have seen something or known something or spotted something that would have, we could have noticed this before it got to the need for her to even have a surgery? And you replay it and replay it and, you you know, you go over and over things. Um, in reality, probably not. But as a mum, I don't think you ever exonerate yourself from guilt. Um, I think it's just something that you carry because nobody wants to see the child suffer. And you would always rather that it happened to you than to them. And whenever she's going through an episode and, you know, I'm sitting beside her in hospital, you know, you wish it was yourself just laying there being you know, pulled about and examined and x-rayed and, and all of these, these invasive yes, things. Course, um, and I, and I don't think that'll ever go. I think, I think I, I think I carry that. And I think I carry that to, to make sure that I never lose awareness of what she is living with because she has, she has got to live with it. And there's no, like, they don't grow out of it. Like, is there any kind of research that's being done or um, anything that's new that could help? There's, there's quite a lot of research, um, and but the majority of the work that the organisations do um, is around raising awareness so that people get the help early rather than being classed as time wasters by, you know, their doctors and um, emergency departments because it's that crucial period when they are immediately post an episode that if they don't get the right help and support, it actually worsens it for the future. So raising awareness 
of the condition, especially amongst staff that work in emergency departments, it, you know, it, it is key to this. I'm, I was thrilled to hear you say that she does some modeling, which shows that she does have some confidence. And that must be been a, a real difficult um, change in her life when that occurred. Is that correct? Yes, I think it was something she'd always been interested in modeling, um, you know, even before this happened. And um, but I think, you know, when we were in Tasmania and she'd had a particularly bad episode um, and some you know, there was a, um, a like a modeling competition and she entered it. And obviously it was, you know, sort of, you know, fully clothed, you know, sort of you go and you audition. Um, and, and she was selected to go. Um, initially, she was very wary about, you know, attending the modeling school because, you know, would they see her scar and say, right. you know, you know, that's it, you're out of it. Um, but actually they were very, very good. Um, and, they also had ran, run programs in the past for um, disabled children who'd wanted really? to see modelling. And I think it's because they had a bit of empathy as to, you know, and I mean, you know, Jamie Scar is by no means on the same par as, you know, people who model with, you know, um, physical disabilities. Right. Um, and I think that helped her to put it to another level. And when she was modelling, it was there was never anything wrong with her. In, and even if she became ill with something, it never triggered the pain syndrome. Really? Which really shows how the psychological side of it can be controlled if she's happy and fulfilled in her life and feels confident and able to cope with anything. She can suppress it enough, um, you know, to know that, you know, she hurts somewhere, she deals with it straight away, you know, she takes some paracetamol, she takes some ibuprofen catches it before the pain escalates right. and then she's in control rather than forgetting about taking anything, leaving it all day, being in severe pain, and then her, her mind takes over and then she's out of control. What other uh, types of uh, occurrences trigger this in other people? Um, stress is a big factor for a lot of people because – People who develop it from, say, being in a road traffic accident where they've actually sustained a broken limb or something like that, um, there's often, you know, a lot of a lot of triggers that go with that. Um, it's it's quite a hard thing to say because you know everybody is so different, right? Um, and I think it does depend on how much support they have, both from their medical advisors and from their, you know, family and friends as well. She must be an amazing girl, and you are an amazing family and mother. I applaud you. I oh, think absolutely. So now the post-traumatic stress, did this come as a result of the other? Uh, no. Well, the post-traumatic stress disorder, was it was actually me that was affected by that. Um, okay. Uh, it was something that, you know, in general terms, again, would be classed as quite minor, but um, we were renovating our house in Ipswich near Brisbane and we decided to take a, a break for lunch because, you know, we'd been sort of, we'd, we were there for a week and we'd been at it every day. So uh, we got in the car and we were just driving the, the short drive to the, um, the, the city centre and Nigel noticed that as soon as we pulled into the into the main road, this car was um, tailgating us. You know, he was he was like he wanted to overtake, and um, Jamie was turning around in the back, 
looking at this guy in this um, sort of old ute, um, which is like a works vehicle in Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, Nigel said, look, you know, we're, we're there's a slip road coming up. I'll pull over. And he's obviously in a hurry. We'll, we'll let him pass. Um, but when he had the opportunity to pass, he didn't. Uh, he just kept, you know, coming up really hard behind and braking. And as we pulled out into the uh, slip road, um, Nigel sort of looking in his mirror and, and the, the, the guy is making, you know, uh, sort of rude hand gestures at mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. We're not really sure at this stage what, what his problem is because he could quite easily overtake if he wanted to. And then he seemed to pull back. So we thought everything was okay. And then suddenly he just rammed into the back of us. Just, you know, luckily we were only going about 30 miles an hour, but, you know, he rammed straight into the back of us. Nigel brought the car to a sudden halt and, and his reaction was he just jumped out. Right. Um, I was in the passenger seat, but because I'd been turned around looking at Jamie because she was getting quite distressed by this guy who had been making these hand signals, you know, and right. she was looking out the back window. So obviously my seatbelt had impacted while I was twisted in my seat. So I'd sort of – my neck was was really stiff. I couldn't couldn't really move. and um, But I, I had to get out of the car because I needed to get Jamie out because I didn't know if the car – it, it sounded horrible, you know, the, the sound was much worse than the damage, um, but I just knew I needed to get her out of the car. Um, so I took my seatbelt off, uh, opened her door and got her out. And just so I got her out, a guy was walking along uh, the footpath and he could obviously see what had happened. And he lifted her up and, and took her onto the path. And I could see that she was safe. And I looked across at Nigel and this guy had got into an altercation with him because um, Nigel had gone to pull his keys away because he was trying to drive away um, from from the accident. Um, so Nigel just shouted across to me, you know, you need to call the police. So I'm on my phone and I'm phoning the police and it the you know, it, you know I, they're asking where are you and I didn't know where I was because we didn't actually live there yet. You know, we were just renovating right, the house. Right. So I didn't know the name of the road or anything and I'm trying to still look at Jamie to see if she's safe because she, she's with a stranger, but, you know, I... It was a bit, you know, the, the worst of two evils, really. Um, anyway, the police arrived really quickly, um, but they were really, you know, not very helpful in the situation um, because there wasn't a great deal of damage. They were more interested in that we just get the vehicles off the road because obviously the traffic had started to back up. Um, and Nigel asked the, the, the policewoman, you know, you know, you're not going to breathalyze him or something, you know, because this is not normal behavior for someone to, to do this. You know, if he was in a hurry, he had plenty of time to overtake us. Um, and she said, you know, you're trying to tell me how to do my job and started to get. You know. oh. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, you know, we went through the, you know, the, the business of exchanging details and um, giving statements and all of that kind of thing. And you sort of forget about yourself and what, you know, what's wrong with you um and you know we we just went back to the house um but my neck was still really painful and um I knew there was something not not quite right there so uh we I said tonight I said I I think I need to just go to the hospital I need to just get it checked because you know I can feel there's something not quite right there um we went to the hospital and um they examined me and I had to go and um, have various investigations and they said, you know, it's just a severe whiplash. But, you know, so they gave me some um, diazepam to relieve the tension and some painkillers and that. And I sort of thought I was okay until we got back to Alice Springs. And um, I went to get into the car one day 
um, you know, I used to drive Jamie's school and drive all over the place. Mm-hmm. But I, I went to get in the car and I couldn't actually open the door, not because I physically couldn't open the door. My head didn't want to open the door. I didn't didn't want to get in the car. And I couldn't really work out what was what was wrong with me. I didn't really understand huh. why I, I suddenly felt like that. Um, and I mean, now I, I can sort of work out that I'd finished taking the um, diazepam for my whiplash okay so the feelings had obviously all been suppressed by the medication I've been taking but um I suddenly became very acutely aware of loud noise uh if a car screeched past or uh, a motorbike going past really loud suddenly that was that was deafening in my ears I couldn't couldn't think couldn't move um so no, I just said, that's fine. Look, you just don't drive for a little while, you know. Um, and it didn't make any sense. I mean, I wasn't driving when we had the accident. So um, so anyway, I went to see my doctor and she said, look, let's just have a course of some some counselling. Just try to so maybe if you talk it through, you've obviously built up an anxiety, um, you know, to vehicles. Uh, let's see if we can work through it that way. Um but I wouldn't even get in the car to go to the sessions. You know, I would walk five kilometers to go to these sessions and walk five kilometers back because I wouldn't get in the car. And, wow. um, and Nigel said, look, you can't, you can't live like this. You can't, you know, what are we going to do? We're never going to go anywhere because you won't get in the car. Cause I wouldn't even go shopping. I couldn't, couldn't face just getting in the car as a passenger, let alone to drive. Um, and so I was having my sessions and I tried some, um, anti-anxiety, different medications, and you just think you're making a bit of progress. And I had to try these exercises where every morning on a day I'd got to go somewhere in a car, I had to go and sit in the car in the passenger seat for five minutes at a time. So sit for five minutes and get out Mm. and get back in for five minutes. Mm. So if I needed to go out at nine o'clock in the morning, I had to start this at six o'clock in the morning to be able to get to the stage where I could actually sit in the car to be able to to go somewhere and then one day um Nigel was working away and my friend Carol who'd been taking me to wherever I needed to go because they were the only two people I actually felt safe with by this stage mm-hmm. and they were both away and Jamie had gone to school without her lunch and the school phoned and said <laughs> she needs her lunch and but she needed it straight away because they were going on a trip so I didn't have time to walk to the school I'd got to take the car I'd got to go so uh, if you can imagine, I'm trying to – I hadn't driven since the accident. Wow. And I suddenly – I've got to get in our car and I've got to drive to the school. And I I, I don't know. I, even now, I, I don't know how I did it, but I got in the car and I did drive to the school. And I'm driving back and suddenly the police are pulling me over. And and I can just hear the noise because I'm so perceptive of this noise. The noise of the siren was so loud, so I pulled over. And he said, you're speeding. And I've never had a speeding ticket in the whole of my – since I've been driving for many, many years. And because Alice Springs is, um, you know, it's very built up around schools and, and things and there's a lot – you'd often find the indigenous people in the road. You don't speed because, you know, you will hit somebody. And um, I said, I, I can't be speeding. And he said, no, you were. But I think what happened was I just wanted to be home so badly. Aww. I just blanked. I, I, my mind was on, you've got to get home. Right. And I wasn't, I wasn't, I think I was just in autopilot. I don't remember how I controlled the car 
to get to the school and I don't know how I controlled it to get that far. And after he'd given me the ticket, I've got about another kilometre to go before I get home. And I and I I really don't know how I managed to get back in and get it <laughs> get it back home, but I did. And I just pulled it up in the road. I didn't even pull it up in the drive. I just got out and went indoors. And I phoned Nigel and he said, look, I'm going to come home. Don't, just stay where you are. <laughs> and I said, it's okay, I'm home. He said, yes, but Jamie's going to need picking up later. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that's really where I started to, you know, have it properly investigated because obviously this was much more than, mm. um, you know, just some anxiety condition. Um, and obviously um, the, the process of the accident, because we'd actually been in a hire car, um, in because we, when we were renovating the house and we were in a different state, so obviously there was a um, you know sort of a, a legal action going on because he right. damaged the hire car and that kind of thing. So um, they they alongside that introduced a claim for um, you know personal injury from for my whiplash, and then obviously because I started having the problems with the anxiety, you know they built that in as well. So I had to start seeing these um, psychiatrists in Brisbane. Um, but obviously, you know, that was a four hour drive away. So every time we're trying to, you know, um, you know, once we lived, we had to actually move to Ipswich so I could get this treatment because from Alice Springs, that was not going to happen. Um, and it, it was like everything that was supposed to be making me better made me worse before I got there. <laughs> Oh my it was, word. It was like a vicious circle. Um, Are you dealing with your daughter at the same time? Yes. I mean, because her accident, you know, her, her you know, her, right. her boil and all that had happened sort of, you know, just, you know, less than a year earlier. So we're, okay. we're still in the early stages of that. Um, and so you, you're trying to, you know, think, oh, stop being selfish. This is not about you. You know, this is about her. And you're trying to do all that. And I think probably in hindsight, I did too much of that because I think I should, probably should have accepted earlier that I had an issue. And then maybe I would have, um, you know, I, I dealt with it differently. Right. Or um, healed just, faster. Yes. Yeah. Because I think acceptance of something takes you a long way to actually getting some help, getting a cure if there is a cure or, or some treatment um, that, that works for you. So, um, but when I was assessed by the psychiatrist um, as part of the claim, um, it was just after the Brisbane floods. And so he said, um, well, I think this problem is all down to the, the, the loss of your home. He said, I don't think this is down to the accident. And I said, I don't care what, what you think. Exactly. <laughs> I, there's something wrong with me. It didn't happen when we lost the house, which literally just happened two weeks before because we hadn't even had time to think about that. Um, this had been happening to me, um, you know, for over a year. Um, and I didn't want to be on medication uh -huh. all of the time. And I wanted my independence back because if you could imagine, if you've always been, you know, I've always had a career, I've always driven, you know, there's been periods in my life where I've been a single mum and you are all over the place. You know, you're dropping kids at childminders, school, after school clubs. Everything revolves around transport, your whole working life, everything. To suddenly, you know, not have that, to not drive and not even feel comfortable as a passenger, it's, it changes your whole life. It changes everything that you do. Now, I want to talk to you about the floods, but before that, address if this was a problem. Did your husband believe you and how, you know, because you're going through this whole thing with your daughter and the fact that 
you know, you want to believe her and what she's going through. And you said that even her brothers and sisters and, and Nigel had issues with that. How did that reflect on you then when this happened? I mean, did they kind of roll their eyes and say, oh, yeah, sure, just grow up? Or, or did they totally understand and relate? I think it was really hard for them. Um, and even now, because I still, I still don't drive, I'm still working on this, but I do travel in the car now. Um, but I'm very selective who I travel with. But, um, I think they did sort of think I can't, you know, it wasn't a bad car accident. No one died. No one was injured badly. Um, how can that have caused such a severe reaction? But I think as time goes on and if they ever have to have me in the car with them and they see what it does to me, then they suddenly realize, oh my God, this is real. <laughs> this is, this is not mum exaggerating. This is, this is something real. Um, I'll give you an example. My, my son, um, picked me up one time, um, from an airport hotel and I'd never been in the car with him since he passed his driving test. Mm. And, but he'd been driving for a couple of years. It's just that he'd been away traveling and, you know, it just had never happened that I'd been in a car with him. And I don't make a big thing. I don't go around wearing a sign saying, you know, <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've got driving anxiety and, um, you know, it demonstrates like uh, PTSD. So, um, and every time I, I go in the car with someone different, I, I try and get over it. I think, well, look, if I can face this, it might help me. So I got in the car and it was raining really heavily and he's in a higher car, so he's not overly familiar with it. And I knew from the time he tried to reverse out of the parking spot that he wasn't familiar with the controls and immediately oh dear, I was shutting down and I could feel my fingernails going into the seats because I was just holding on against, Mum, what are you doing? I said, what? He said, you're making holes in the seats. Will you just <laughs> let go of the seat? I said, I've got to get out. He said, you can't get out. We've got to get out of this parking space. I said, no, I have to get out of the car. He said, it's raining. Will you please just sit down? And I'm fidgeting in the seat, um, you know, as if I'm going to get out. And he said, look, I'm going to put the central locking on if you don't sit still. And he said, let's just get out of the airport um, hotel car park and we'll pull over somewhere. And we did that and we pulled into this uh, lay-by and there was like a little coffee um, a caravan. He said, look, I'll get you a drink and we'll, we'll sort out what's going on here. And uh, so I had to explain to him why I feel the way I did. Wow. He said, why didn't you tell me how bad this was before? I would never have offered to pick you up. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So they're all a bit cautious now. <laughs> no, no kidding. But you are improving. I, I think I'm improving. Um, there, there are times when I it's not so good. Um you know, if I'm in a car with, with someone new or if something happens, see, when I'm looking, when I'm sitting in the car and I'm, and I'm looking forward, what I see is cars crashing in front of me. And there's no logic to that because I didn't see anything like that happen. But that's what I see when I sit in wow. a car, when I get stressed. That's I can see accidents happening ahead of me. So I'm constantly waiting for us to have to stop because of right. what's happening in front of us. And have you, sorry. I was just going to say that it's just that permanent high state of alert that hmm. causes the reaction. Now, have you run into anybody else that suffers with this? Like, are there any uh, group support, support um, groups or? I met a couple of people while I was having the counseling in Australia. I haven't actually met anybody now that I'm back in the UK. Um, because, again, it's a bit like the pain syndrome. Everybody is affected slightly differently. Mm. Um, 
But the problem is that, you know, they give you this diagnosis, oh, you know, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. And immediately you say that people think about people who have been to war. Right. People right. who have been shot or been in something that's really terrible, you know. Um, and so you don't want to display that label, really, because it's like you're trivializing what happens to these people, um, you know, who are so traumatized and badly affected and you think well I'm not going to say that I've got this but mm -hmm. all that happened was that you know some road rage incident made me have a fear of being in a car you know because that sounds ridiculous um, and so you try to steer away from the group work because you don't want to be the one to say okay. how, how okay. it happened <laughs> that makes sense that's right yeah and so, it's again I suppose you're dealing with a little bit of guilt as far as that goes because it's something that's out of your control, and yet you don't want to admit, like you said, you know, that this is actually very true. I think the whole thing is that, you know, if you can't rationalize it in your own mind, how is anybody else going to? Right. Because right. I can have moments, you know, when, when I don't have to go anywhere, I am absolutely fine. But if someone called me tonight, you know, Nigel's at work and said, Jamie's ill and I've got to go and get in a taxi or I've got to go somewhere, I know I would shut down, you know, and I've got to have to work myself through what I have to do to be able to get in a car now um, wow. to be able to deal with that. And the only thing that is easier for me is when it is an emergency situation and especially something to do with one of the children because I can shut myself off, then it's not about me, okay. it's totally about yeah. them. And, right. and so I try to use that on myself when I have to do something and I sometimes have to pretend that, that I, you know, I'm doing something that's really important for them, not going to the shops or going on a day out. So that's, it's a full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> you're dealing with that. You're dealing with your daughter. I mean, it's an emotional, stressful, full-time job of learning I, how yeah, to cope. I think we take, we take our mental health for granted in everyday life and I don't think it needs for anybody to have something like, you know, pain syndrome or any kind of anxiety-based condition. Um, I don't think we, we take good enough care of each other and our mental health because so many um, conditions are triggered or worsened by stress. Yes. And stress is part of our life and there's good stress and there's bad stress. I and mean, we all need a little bit of stress to, to push us to do things right. and it's a achieve. Yes. yes. Um, but I think when you have a weakness of any kind, you have to be really careful how you manage your stress. Otherwise, it could escalate and display itself in a form that is, you know, totally irrational. Hmm. Okay, so now... The other trauma, tell us about the floods. Well, I have to say, I, I've always been a bit of a believer in, in fate. Um, and I think in relation to the floods, uh, fate played a big, big part. Um, on the night, the floods uh, in Brisbane happened on the 11th of January 2011. And as it happened, we were actually... We weren't in Australia at the time because that was the day of my daughter's wedding. And so we were in the UK. And But I know, because I know the personalities of myself and Nigel, that had we been in Australia that night, if we'd have been told to evacuate our house, which was nowhere near the floodplain and was a house on a hill, we would have said, don't be so ridiculous, we're staying. Mm. And 
the consequences of that could have been devastating. I wow. mean, we could have we could have lost our lives, we could have lost our dogs. You know, we would have ended up sitting on the roof. We you know we would have not have left the house. I know that we would not have done that <laughs> because we're just stubborn and right, we'd, right. We'd, we'd worked so hard to renovate it. I just know that we wouldn't have left it. Um, so I think you know fate dealt us a card, but. Um, because we were away, we'd actually been watching the news footage of the uh, tsunami, the inland tsunami that had gone through Toowoomba a few days previously, um, because we used to shop in Toowoomba, you know, and watching places that you've, the streets that you've walked down be submerged by tidal water and it's inland was, was bizarre. And so you couldn't help but watch it on Sky News. And then the day of the wedding, Obviously, it was the night time for us, early hours of the morning um, in the UK. Um, it, we woke up in the middle of the night and we both got missed calls on our phones. And obviously, you know, because we've got our dogs in kennels in Australia, Nigel's dad was still in Australia, you immediately think, oh, my God, something's something's wrong with one of them, right. you know, and, and someone's trying to get hold of us. But um, it was actually um, a friend of mine um, who um, was sort of, not looking out for the house, but you know, just just you right. know, aware, right. and just uh, trying to let us know that um, there was there was flooding. She didn't know if we were affected or anything, but um, and then we had some other missed calls, but we didn't know who they were from. And um, and by the morning, we'd uh, phoned Nigel's dad, and he said, "Look, there's been really severe flooding uh, in Ipswich, where your house is." Um, and got back to my friend and spoke to some other people, and they said, well, um, the house has been breached. And I said, well, what does that mean? And nobody could tell us what that meant. So I just said, look, there's nothing we can do. If it, you know, if the garden is flooded or something's happened, we'll deal with it when we get home. There is nothing we can do. You know, this is Sammy's right. day, her wedding. We have to forget about it. We're going home in a few days. Let's, so, you know, we're at the wedding and everything's fine. And be honest we we put it out of our mind you know because there wasn't anything we could do right um we'd phoned the kennels to make sure that the dogs were all right and they weren't affected by the floods and uh, we phoned the airport parking where the car was and they weren't affected so we thought well this is fine you know we'd seen on the news that a lot of places had had you know really devastating damage but um we hadn't seen anything that was near to where our house was so we still thought it was the garden we thought you know okay the garden's flooded Never mind. When we um, picked the dogs up from the kennels and we got the car and we're driving home, we're driving through Brisbane and you could drive through one street and it's totally unaffected. You turn into another one and it's like you've driven into a war zone oh. and they're clearing up. Everybody's possessions have been shoveled to the edge of the road and there's pieces of furniture. You can see people's photographs. It's a carpet. And it's it's horrible. It's like people's lives have just been put into these little mounds waiting to be collected. And I said to Nigel, I said, oh, God, this is horrible. You know, I don't know how people, you know, come back from something like this. I don't know. You know, I can't imagine what that would be like, you know, if, you know, that was our photographs or, you know, our, our belongings or whatever. And as we drove into Ipswich, where our house was, the the roads were just covered in this brown sludge, like silt. Huh. And we, we drove up to the house. And obviously by this time, a few days have passed. There's no water around. But there was um, SES emergency tape all around our house uh, saying, do not enter. And I'm looking at it, and 
the you know it was a high set Queenslander, so you know big house. So the the living area is in the upstairs, and underneath the house is the garage and an area that we were uh, going to convert into a um, a flat for the children when they visited. Um, there was a tide mark around the upstairs windows, mm. and there was food and bits of. Um, uh, packets of uh, milk carton and different oh, things on the roof. Oh. And I'm looking at it thinking, how did that get up there? It totally didn't <laughs> didn't occur to me. And then Nigel said, are you looking at the house? He said, there's no windows. The windows are gone. And oh, I suddenly looked, what? there's no windows. <laughs> and the, the, the door screen, the fly screens were all hanging off. And, and he said, I'm going to look. I said, you can't go and look. Look, it's all taped off. He said, I'm going to look. I said, well, I'm coming with you. He said, no, you're not. He said, I don't, I, I don't want you around there. And obviously Jamie's in the car as well. And so he said, right, you stay in the car. And so he disappeared and it felt like ages he was gone. Mm. And um, and he came back. He said, you are not going around there. He said, you're not. You're not serious. I said, what do you mean? He said, there's nothing left. He said, there's oh. nothing there. He said, I said, but you haven't been in. He said, I don't need to go in. It's all in the garden. You just don't go there. He said, I don't want you to to have that image. Yes, yes. I just don't want you to see that. And he got, you know, shuffled me back and we got in the car and he just drove away. And I said, where are we going? What, what are we going to do? Um, he said, well, we're going to go to the caravans because we've got some caravans on a piece of woodland where we were um, building um, what well, we wanted to have like a little would cabin retreat mm -hmm, okay so we'd, we'd been staying there for a while because we had actually after we'd renovated the house toyed with the idea of selling it so we'd had it um valued in that because we're not really city town people um and we actually felt more at home in the woods you know we so we'd sort of toyed with the idea you know that um that we'd sell it and we'd, we'd actually tried uh, renting it out for a couple of months but the tenants weren't reliable and i said no i don't want to do that you know it's it's our house and we've done all this i can't deal with that so we we tried all these different things but um so we went off to the woods and I suppose by then we to get to the woods we actually had to drive through Toowoomba and we're seeing all this devastation again so you've like gone from Brisbane to Toowoomba and you've driven through these these patches and a farmland on the way because they're big open plains and fields just completely flattened you know that normally you're you know lush and green and right um, and there's nothing there. And it's a it, totally different environment that we'd left. And so Nigel phoned his dad and said, look, I, I don't know don't know what we're going to do. So his dad said, look, I'm getting a flight over there. I'm going to come and see, you know, what I can do, if we can do anything. Um, and I don't think we really took it in. And I think I, we, we dealt with it from a practical level, didn't really realise the impact of, of what had happened um, because literally three days after that, I had to go to the psychiatrist and, and, uh, and that's when he said, Oh, you know, this, you know, tell me about your week and all that. And I told him about the floods <laughs> and, and that's when he said, Oh, this is not about driving. You know, this is about the floods. And I'm going, oh. no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but, you're um, laughing. That's a good sign. <laughs> To, to be honest, um, it is the only way with this because it, it's so dreadful. You know, there, there are people that live near us. There was a, a lady, I didn't know her very well, but she actually had a stillbirth that night from the stress of the, oh, of the floods. Oh. We, know, we know people who lost their pets that night. They were just literally washed away. And, um, you know, we, we, we're very, um, you know, pet conscious people. And, yes, yes. You know, I can't, oh, yeah, that's just 
that would just, you know, devastate me. The fact, uh, you know, it's a quite humbling experience to lose possessions, um, especially, you know, we lost some very personal things that can't be replaced. We were fortunate that because we'd been renovating and because we'd had a period between living in the woods and um, and living at the house, we had actually some stuff in storage. So, you know, it wasn't like every single thing disappeared, right. but a lot of very precious things mm-hmm. went. Um, but I think it, it, it heightens the awareness of vulnerability that, that nothing is permanent. And But it also makes you understand that material possessions really don't matter. What is important that is that we were all safe and well. You know, we lost a house as part of the process, you know, that would, would go on over the next two years. You know, the house um, and our land became repossessed because obviously the value of it was less than the mortgage we had on it. Um, we had to do what a lot of people had to do was a voluntary bankruptcy due to natural disaster. Um, and it was... Um, I don't know, it's just a very humbling experience, but you realise that life goes on. You know, we didn't die. Um, you know, and many people were much worse affected than we were. Um, and it, But it makes you appreciate everything that you have um, and everything that you do and the decisions that you make because when you leave your house to go on holiday, you assume that when you go back, everything will be exactly how you left it. <laughs> and I will never take that for granted again. <laughs> You've gained strength, you've gained insight, you've gained stamina, you've proven yourself over and over again. You need to stand up and give yourself a pat on the back because, and hopefully this is the end of it. Hopefully now it's just a, you know, better days ahead in every respect, I'm sure. But reflecting backwards, which you don't do every day, you're doing it today for this broadcast, and I totally understand that. But as you're talking, I can feel your strength and I can feel your tenacity that I'm not giving up. There's nothing, you know, I'm just moving forward. And your ability to share your story and what help it will be for others is phenomenal. And I think, it does, that's, you, a, yeah, I think that's a big thing because when, I mean, obviously after the flood and, you know, we didn't have anywhere to go. So we moved to Tasmania to move in with uh, Nigel's dad in his house. And, um, when I when I got a job there and I was, you know, people say, oh, why have you moved here, you know? And so you tell them and they sit there with their mouths open like, oh, my God. <laughs> so what have you got left? And I said, well, we've got um, a couple of suitcases and um, <laughs> and our dogs. And they go, I, I can't imagine. And I said, well, I don't need anything else. You know, we, we actually have everything we need might not have everything we want, but we actually have everything we need. And, it, and and we can actually start again. And, um, you know, losing all my books was a really big thing for me because I've always loved my books. And so I started um, – my healing was going around the charity shops and I would just buy all of the books that were 50 cents. <laughs> and Nigel goes – you don't even read that. I said, no, I just want some books. Because it's I want security. It's security around you. And I still do it now. Oh, and, that's um, funny. Do you have lots of bookshelves? I do. And, and, you know, if I go, if I, my daughter, she's, she's a bit of a charity shop um, hoarder as well. And we'll go in there and I'll come home. And, and Nigel will always say to me, one carrier bag. That's it. You're not to take more <laughs> than one carrier bag. And they don't, um, they don't give you carrier bags here. 
So, you know, he usually feels quite safe in that. But um, but my daughter keeps the bags in the car. So um, I'll come home and I'll put the books on the shelf and he'll go, there's more, isn't there? And I'll go, no. <laughs> but then I have to ask him to make me more shelves so he knows that. that That's, funny. <laughs> That's funny. So what is the predominant factor that got you through? all these traumas, is there one thing that you rely on, one kind of support, possibly your faith? What is it that has gotten you through? I think it's probably two things. Um, my family are, you know, the most important thing in the world to me. And the fact that despite anything that's happened, we're all still alive, we're all still together I will say we're all still healthy, even though Jamie's got her issues, because, um, you know, we can deal with that. Right. Um, and I think, yes, my, my faith that um, it's it's not our time for something really bad. You know, um, we've been through these episodes, but people go through so much worse. And if, you know, if, other, you, know, I, I, you know, I do read a lot and I read people's stories and and I think, oh, my God. I don't know how they did that. And people will say to me, well, look what you did. <laughs> that's and I go, right. that's no, right. that's that's nothing. You should read this. And they'll go, yes, I have. But look at what you did. And I'll go, no. <laughs> and and I think that, you know, if you can just maintain that, that positive outlook, that it doesn't matter what anybody – it definitely doesn't matter what anybody says to you because that's just words. But there, if I've got my faith and if I've got my family – there is nothing that anybody's going to be able to do to me that will take me down. I will protect my kids to the end of the earth and I will be there for them. And I have taught them to be positive, independent people, and they are. So I know that going forward, they've got the tools yes. to cope with whatever life may challenge them with because life is all about challenges that's right it would be what fun would it be if we didn't have some challenge I mean, we would have nothing to talk about or we'd certainly have nothing to write about um and but challenges are different for everybody you know one thing that happens to one person would be nothing to anybody else someone else and and vice versa so i think if you can you know look at everything and try and find one tiny little grain of positivity in it you can come back from it if there was nothing then yes you would be lost well, that is attitude, and it's attitude that gets you through. It's maintaining positive attitude. It's maintaining, you know, an attitude of strength and, and like you said, and not, and looking, knowing that other people who have suffered possibly um, less than you have, you don't look at it that way. You look at it as how did they get through? It's because you have a good attitude and you're secure in yourself. And I think that's wonderful to maintain a good attitude instead of going to a pity party. You know, I've often said you can throw a pity party. Nobody shows up <laughs> because you're just there by yourself and you're feeling sorry for yourself and you you um you know you drive people away when you have a good attitude you're a magnet and people want to be around you they want that energy and that strength and that you know that warm and fuzzy which obviously comes across very clear when you were talking today so i appreciate that immensely yeah i think i think you're right i think um because a lot of times 
Um, you know, if the kids have got friends around and they'll be talking about, you know, problems with boyfriends and, and things like that, and you say, well, do you really need to put yourself in that situation? Yeah. And uh, they sit there and go, no. I said, well, so why do you? Well, yes. And it's like, oh, yeah, wonder. <laughs> the wisdom, wisdom of a mother. What What is one quote, if you have one, that, you know, really um, has made an impact on your life? And one or two, are there any? I always am interested to see what people, like possibly like a mantra, you know, like what is what is something that is you always think of that you that you can draw from? I think um, for, for all of our lives, um, I mean, I've always been um, a very ambitious person in my career. And, um, you know, and I've, I've always, I've always had this thing that um, if you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. It doesn't matter what it is. And, you, and you, you can make it happen. That's Napoleon Hill, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I can't, I don't remember where I first was introduced to that, but whenever I'm at a crossroads and I think I either, I, like, a, you know, when I was nursing, if I needed a new challenge, new direction in the career or, you know, um, you know, when we were in Australia and didn't know what, what to do next, you've got to think, well, if, if, if you could do anything, if you could be anything, what would it be? And if you can just build that dream. Um, and I, I still do it now. I have my dream boards and it might be um, uh, a, a goal I want to achieve, um, something I'd like to make or something I'd like to learn. Um, you know, if I can actually come up with that in my head, then I can work a plan to make that happen. And um, and it's nice that my daughter, um, she's just become a mum eight months ago, and she's got the same um, – well, she's got it, actually got it up in her kitchen. So, um, you know, I know that she's <laughs> she's going down the same route. <laughs> oh, that's marvellous. That's good. Well, what is your call to action? today for our listeners anything say, in particular I would say don't be beaten I don't think there's anything that you can't get past with uh, help everybody needs help um, you know none of us are, uh, are islands um, sometimes I think we struggle to think that anybody would want to help us or they would not deem that what we perceive something that needs help is worthy of it mm. so I think you know if you've got something that troubles you or you've got you're in a situation where you don't feel safe or you just know that it's wrong for you you should always trust your instincts then you've got to do something uh, you've got to take some action don't ever think the answer will just come to you because it won't <laughs> you have to make it happen uh, and you have to believe that there is something better for you don't accept what is given you know if you want more make more find it but have the right people around you whether that is family whether that is good friends whether that's a, a network of like-minded people um i mean i i'm i'm quite into social media because of, of my writing now but i never used to be but some of the people that i've met um and people that email me and say wow uh I, I didn't know what to do and I can't, you know, my story is nothing like yours, but I think now I know I have to do something. Wonderful. So people 
you know, with issues, whatever they are, whether it's relationship-based or work or whatever, can use any inspirational story to find the key to help them move forward. So I think I would say find somebody or something that triggers in you the urge to fix it and find the solution. I'm writing that down. So find someone or something. Yeah. That triggers the urge in you to, to fix it. That triggers the urge in you to fix it. That's excellent. Well, you've left me speechless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> what I'm going to do, what I do for all the people that I interview is you will have a page on my website that'll have all your story of course they can listen to it there as well as an iTunes or Stitcher they will also have your contact information your books will be there with links to purchasing them a little bio about you and your picture so as people are listening to this they will be seeing you as well they will be uh, relating to you and can contact you through your contact information so it'll all be there in one place and I know that people will want to do just that. And I hope that you will be open and ready to answer any of their questions that may come. And I know that you will um, benefit from it, as they will, obviously, as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, totally. I, th I think it's really important when um, – I, I actually feel a little bit blessed to have been through the things I've been through because now I have something to offer to other people that maybe they won't have to go the whole journey. They might be able to reach out to someone like me, like some of the other, um, you know, authors who write about right. their experiences right. and find some comfort, find some hope and just find someone that they can relate to, um, you know, whether that's just by an email or, you know, whether they want to, you know, get in touch in some other way. Right. But um, there, there's, there's great hope for people, I think, by the, the sharing of, of stories and just hearing your story might be all it takes for somebody to Indeed. know you know that if uh, if she went through it and look what she went through I've got to pull up my bootstraps too so yeah. you know you're you're a wonderful example of that well thank you and again we will um, have this uh, very up and running soon so people will be able to contact you. I thank you for your time. I thank you for sharing from your heart and your entire story. And if there's anything else that you want to add, feel free. Okay. Well, well, thank you very much. It's actually very nice. It's been quite a long time since I've actually um, spoken out loud um, about um, you know, the floods and the accident right. and things like that. So I think it's actually helpful for me as well. So thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you again and goodbye. Bye. Thanks a lot, Carol. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.